0: Open to Romans chapter 6, we're continuing our sermon series uh, through uh, a little topical series called Church Foundations, and we're discovering and, and uh, really laying out what some of the foundational blocks of and Church of Hope are. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the mission of the church, which is to make disciples who multiply God's kingdom. And last week, we, we talked a little bit about the vision of the church, which really focuses more on a gospel culture than a gospel program. We want to be a people who are living differently uh, amongst each other. We want to focus on uh, our godly characteristics and what it looks like for us to, to grow in holiness and obedience to God. And so our, our church vision is summed up in four words. Teach. We, we exist to teach the Bible. Right? Jesus' great commandment was to go and make disciples, to teach them everything that he had uh, commanded them. We gather together. We, we gather together to pursue God, and that looks like corporate worship. Every Sunday is important to us as we gather together as God's people, but we also gather together in small group settings. And so our discipleship groups are a really important emphasis of what it looks like for us to fulfill our mission of making disciples and multiplying the kingdom. And we also get together uh, one-to-one, and we get to read the Bible together. We get to invest in each other's lives. And God has gifted us as the church to use our gifts for the good of the body, to work together as the church and then we have engage, that's the, the third word. We're to engage in obedience to the scripture. So we want to be a people that are obedient to God's calling and God's commands. We want to love one another well, and we want to bring honor and glory to his name. And last, we are to reach. We're to reach across the table, the street, and the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we've covered mission, and we've covered vision. And over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've provided a couple of helpful definitions Uh, about what it means to be a Christian. And so uh, Christians are people who have been made alive by God by responding to the gospel message of Jesus' death for our sin, his burial, and his resurrection overcoming the grave in repentance and faith. So Christians are people who have responded to the good news and have been made alive by God, and our lives exist to bring him glory. And the local church is a group of regular Christians who regularly gather together to do three things to proclaim the gospel to affirm one another by the ordinances and to live together as God's family these two definitions are really important for us as we uh, identify who's a christian and what it means for us to be god's church the local church the bride of christ so again christians are people who are made alive by jesus's work on the cross and response of repentance and faith A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together to proclaim the gospel, to affirm one another by the ordinances, and to live together as God's family. And so as we come to Romans 6 this morning, we're going to continue to look at some of the foundational pieces of church life. And so we know that the most important thing that we can say about the church's structure is this. First and foremost, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is king here. He rules and reigns among his people. He leads his people, and he is the head of the body. We all pursue Jesus. We pursue God together. We follow Jesus. We submit to what he has done, and we are pursuing him uh, together and individually. So Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, and Jesus has given us a mission, and his mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to teach them everything that he has commanded them, and to know that he is with them always. So Jesus has sent us on this mission to go make disciples, and that vision is, is how we carry that out together. Uh, but this morning, we're going to kind of shift to that second part of what it means to be the local church. We've talked a little bit about what it means to proclaim the gospel, to live together, what our mission and our vision is. And, and the second part of that definition is that we are a group of regular Christians who gather together to affirm one another by the ordinances. Jesus has commanded two specific practices for the local church throughout the ages. And that those practices are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted these two things and made them a commandment for the church to pursue. And so we see, again, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It says baptizing them and teaching them, right? And then Jesus, as he was with the 12 right before his death, he instituted the Lord's Supper and said, as often as you eat of the cup and, or eat of the bread and drink of the cup, do so in remembrance of me. He made these two things some of the most important things that we can emphasize and do together as God's people. And notice part of our definition is that we affirm one another by the ordinances. And so the practice of baptism and the practice of the Lord's Supper help us as Christians to affirm our gospel belief in one another. And and so today we're going to focus in specifically on the practice of baptism. And if you haven't noticed, baptism is a divisive uh, divisive doctrine within the life of the church. There's many different opinions. And so we're going to pursue what the Bible has to say about baptism this morning together. So Romans chapter 6, let's read God's word if you'd like to follow along as I read this morning. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14 say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under, the, under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord for the church this morning. Thanks be to God. And so through, uh, through this morning's sermon, I really want to provide a couple of things. I, I want to first address the question, what is baptism? And then next uh, I'll, I'll cover some of the differences that divide, and then we'll last end up providing a, a stance on where we stand here as Hebron Church of Hope on baptism. And so what is baptism? We just read this passage. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. He's writing to this group of Romans, a church that exists in the Rome area that he's not presently in. He's writing to them on their behalf. And in the first few chapters, he's covered what it means for us to be justified by faith and how faith has made us righteous by God. And so... As he writes these things and he tells them that their righteousness is in Jesus, his first instruction to them is, don't use your righteousness in Jesus for your freedom to do as you please, but live in a way that is pleasing to God. And then he goes into this illustration of baptism. So the first question is, what is baptism? Uh, There's a really good book I'm going to recommend to you. It's called Understanding Baptism by Bobby Jamison. Bobby's a a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I want to recommend that book to you. It's like $4.99. It's small and in paperback. It's like 60 pages. Great. So a lot of what I'm going to say about baptism and its definitions will come from him. And he says this, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So baptism is an act of the church, and baptism is an act of an individual in which we show the unity of the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished for our salvation. And so, first and foremost, we need to identify that baptism is the act of immersing someone in the water. Uh, There are different ways, different modes of, of baptism that exist today. And so there are some people who practice baptism by sprinkling right they take a little drop of water and they sprinkle it on people's heads right there are some that take actual jars and pour it over somebody's head and then there are people like us who actually grab people put them in a tub dunk them and pull them out right and so baptism by immersion has actually been a practice in judaism for thousands of years and in the old testament baptism was actually a practice in which they would bring gentiles who would proclaim their faith in Yahweh, who would say that they've been made new by God, and they would actually baptize themselves. They'd go to a body of water. They would dunk themselves in the water and come out of the water, symbolizing that they have washed themselves of their old life and have been made pure in walking in holiness to Yahweh. And then in the Gospels, we see the first uh, sense of um, baptism by immersion come from John the Baptist, as he proclaims that there's the kingdom of God that is coming, he says, repent and believe. And he then calls people to baptism. So he is not just calling Gentiles, he's calling all people to turn from their sin and to believe that God's kingdom is coming. And their preparation for God's kingdom is to be baptized in cleansing to prepare their hearts and their minds and their lives for God's coming. And we actually see that Jesus after his birth and after he's lived for some time, he comes to see John the Baptist baptizing and is baptized by John the Baptist himself. And so Jesus' mode of baptism, he was not sprinkled. He came to the river and John baptized him by dunking him in the water and pulling him out. And so there are circumstances, there are ways that, that other modes of baptism may be acceptable. But preferably the scripture says that baptism is by immersion. And so those other modes might not be necessarily heretical, but the preferred mode of the Bible is baptism by immersion. And so Paul brings us to life, and he says in verse 3 of Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so Paul says that our act of baptism, it, what it's symbolizing as we are dunked into the water is that we are dying with Jesus, dying to sin, and as we raise out of the water, just as re- Jesus rose to new life, he, we are now walking in a newness of life. And so baptism portrays what Jesus has done. Bobby Jameson says that baptism is an act of the church and an act of a believer. And and so what the church is doing is they're affirming that these individuals are living in light of the gospel. Baptism is an act in which we, as the church, then hear about someone's salvation how they have been made alive by God. Because we've said, right, that our definition of Christian is someone who is made alive by God through a response to the gospel in repentance and faith. And, and so baptism, before we can baptize anybody, we have to ask them, have you responded to the gospel through repentance and faith? And if they say yes, then we'll start to examine, All right, are you showing evidence of that life? And as we baptize them, it's, it's an affirmation that, yes, you are living in light of what you have proclaimed, what you have professed. And so the best way for the church to know that someone's a Christian is through their profession of faith followed by baptism, right? A lot of us say, well, it, what does it matter as long as somebody says that they're saved? Well, the Bible says we know someone's saved if they get baptized, they are publicly proclaiming to the world, I am willing to follow Jesus. I've been buried with him, and I've been raised to new life. So, baptism unifies us in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. It brings us together as the people of God, where we can affirm an individual's faith in Christ. But for that individual, it's also that act of publicly committing himself or herself to Jesus as they are raised out of the water, as they go through this act, they're saying, yes, I'm going to walk with him. But not just I'm going to walk with him, I'm going to walk with his people. Because God has created us to be together as the community of the church. And so as we affirm their belief in the gospel, as they say to us, the church, and to the world that they believe in Jesus, they are now becoming a part of God's people, the gathered church. And so we unite together, showing that there's a difference, that there's a boundary line, that we are now in Christ, and that our lives have been changed by him. So baptism is a beautiful symbolic act, or symbolic act. I guess I've had too much coffee. <laughs> what? Yeah, you're probably like, that's all the time, brother. Um, And so another question of what is baptism comes from this. What's the heart behind baptism? Why would we command people to be baptized? Well, here's my first part of that answer. Jesus did. Jesus did, plain and simple. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them. That wasn't a suggestion for the church. That was a command for the church. Jesus commanded the church to baptize people. And so we should do it first and foremost because... We take Jesus seriously at his word. It's an obedience thing. The heart behind baptism isn't just a a heart in which we show symbolism or show some sort of tradition. It's a heart in which we want to obey God at his commandment through his word. But it's also a part of showing our love for him. right? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't make it a suggestion for them. He says, if you love me... You will keep my commandments. And so one of the best ways for us to see that we walk as the people of God is that we obey him. And not out of a sense of duty or a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of love for our Father, for our Savior. So we get baptized not to show tradition, not to show that we're checking off a box, that we're fulfilling some sort of duty. We, we are baptized to show that we love God and take him seriously at his word. How does that benefit us? It benefits the people of God and the individuals of God by strengthening their faith. I mean, how many of you have been encouraged by baptisms that we've done recently? Anybody by a show of hands? Yeah, okay. I was thrilled when we did baptisms. I mean, I cried when James got baptized, right? And just such an incredible encouragement to us as the people of God. And it strengthened my faith. It, It made me think, Wow, look at the Lord working through his people. Every time we celebrate conversion, that somebody has responded to the gospel, every time we baptize them, it's a rejoicing moment for the church. But it's also a moment in which, as we celebrate their conversion, as we celebrate their faith, they're strengthened, and they're encouraged to continue to follow God. It's such an encouragement for us gathering and for the individual who's participating. And for those of you that have been baptized recently, I hope that you would affirm that, that you were encouraged by people hooting and hollering, that you were trusting in Jesus and you were walking with him. So it's an encouragement for us. It strengthens our faith. But secondly, it is a witness of the gospel. There is nothing like the witness of baptism to the world. As people come into the church, many times people are coming with their families, right? They, they say, hey, I'm dragging you along to church today. I'm getting baptized. And they're like, what is that about, right? Or what do you mean you're getting You're going to one of those Baptist churches? You're going to get dunked in the water? And they say, yeah, because I'm trusting in Jesus and I want to walk with him. And so these unbelieving friends and family members come to church to see their friend or their brother or their son or their husband, be baptized in response to the gospel, and it portrays the gospel to lost people. And not just by word, but by action. They get to see the gospel on display. And they get to see that the church is a group of people who are affirming, who are loving, who are caring, who really take God seriously. So it it strengthens our faith, and it, it provides a great witness of the gospel. And so we said that there are differences. There's differences in mode, right? There's the difference of immersion or, or sprinkling. Uh, but there are also differences that we can put into broad categories of denominations. And so three of the most popular views of baptism are the following. The Roman Catholic view of baptism, what we would call the Protestant paedobaptist baptist view of baptism, and then last, what we would call the Baptist or credo-baptism, the believer's baptism view of baptism. And so I'll define each one for you. And for, so first and foremost, the Roman Catholic Church and their view of baptism. The Roman Catholics believe that baptism is actually the regenerating work of salvation. So they baptize infants, they sprinkle water on their heads, and that's what makes them alive in God. It's not faith that makes them alive in God. It's the work of baptism that makes them alive in God and regenerates them and then actually washes them of their evil so now that they can be part of God's family. So they, they practice that it has nothing to do with faith. It has everything to do with the church, with the priest acting in their power and as their presence of God is an authoritative figure of God's calling to dunk people's heads or to sprinkle them with water to mark them as alive in God. It actually is what makes them part of God's kingdom. I'm just going to say it's heresy. Okay, It is a heretical view of, of baptism. The second view is what we call Protestant paedobaptism, And so again, there are Protestants who practice infant baptism. And Protestants, as they baptize infants, do so for the sake of symbolizing that these infants are now entering into God's covenant community. And so in the Old Testament, as Abraham in Genesis 15 was affirmed of his faith, he was told that he was made righteous, and then the mark of his righteousness was by the act of circumcision. And so circumcision marked off God's people from the world so that people would know that they're part of that covenant, but it's really important to recognize this. If you can't tell, I'm not a paedobaptist. Um, but it's, it's really important to notice this. Abraham was not made righteous by circumcision. He was made righteous by faith. It wasn't the mark. It was his faith that led him to righteousness. But nonetheless, paedobaptists, baptists and there are some paedobaptists baptists that I really respect. John Calvin, paedobaptist, baptist Respect him. Uh, there are some that I have recently passed away. R.C. Sproul was a Paedo-Baptist. Really respect him. He was an amazing Bible teacher. Uh, the Presbyterian brothers and sisters in the Lord. I have great Presbyterian friends that get the Bible right, but we just differ on baptism. They think that it's a covenant act, and I think it's an act of faith in which we symbolize faith in Christ. And so there are, there are differences, but their, their main emphasis is that, s- that baptism in the New Testament and the New Covenant replaces that circumcision, and now helps people to be identified in God's family. And while I can see some of their arguments, I, th- would, I would just generously and, and lovingly say that they make those arguments either on silence or from uh, things that are not there in the context of scripture. And so, each one of those passages that they bring forward and say, well, in Acts, there were families that were baptized, and therefore that means that there were infants. We don't actually see that. The text doesn't actually tell us that. So they imply things from Scripture that might not be consistent with what Jesus has taught. And then there's the believer's baptism, the last few, which is believers, as an act of the church and an act of the individual, are proclaiming their faith in the gospel. They trust in Jesus, and then they're baptized is a symbol of their faith. It's a symbol of the new covenant. And and so I just want to briefly just raise some objections against infant baptism. Uh, And first, I will say this. pato baptism applies the sign of Christ to those that are not in Christ. How do we know someone's in Christ? Just plain and simple. How do we know someone's a Christian? They They profess Jesus in their heart. When was the last time you heard an infant profess Jesus? I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I'm trying to raise a, a serious question here. That's, that's an important thing to ask, is it not? Pa- baptism applies a sign of Christ, a sign of baptism, to those that are not in Christ. So they're saying, here's somebody who's in the faith, somebody who has responded to the gospel message and saying, they're part of this community on faith, and we don't actually know how to affirm that. So it applies the, the sign of Christ to those that are not in Christ. Second, paedo-baptism confuses being born of Christian parents to that of being born again by the Spirit. And so there are some who are raised in this tradition who come and say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've been a Christian my whole life because my, my parents are Christians. That doesn't make somebody Christian. What makes somebody a Christian is a response to the gospel through repentance and faith. And so being born again, Jesus says we must be born again, and we're born of the Spirit, and so the Spirit makes us live. The Spirit regenerates us, right? And so that regeneration takes place when the Holy Spirit's working through somebody through the gospel message, and then they respond in repentance and faith. Third, it mistakenly assumes that God is forming his new covenant people in the same manner as the old covenant. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so there are some that are saying, well, we're the covenant people of God. We're, we're faithful to his promises, and the best way we see that faithfulness is through what God has done in the Old Testament, through circumcision. And Jesus says that he's brought a new covenant by his blood, a covenant that exists by faith, that, that scripture reading that we had this morning from Ezekiel 36. I will place my spirit within them. I will make their hearts new. I will put my law upon their hearts and they will be my people, and I will be their God. This is a new covenant, a new mode of being together as God's people. Uh, Fourth, it undermines the church's call to be salt and light. To be salt and light, that means that we have to show the world salt and light. And so we're saying, hey, we, we believe that repentance and faith are necessary, but if we baptize infants and say, Repentance and faith is necessary, which most Protestant ba- paedo-baptists will affirm that repentance and faith is necessary. They'll just say that baptism is more of a, a symbol of, of covenant, whereas we say, no, it's a symbol of the gospel. And so there's differences that just exist. So one kind of diminishes the salt and light by making pa- or baptism not a necessary thing in life of the church, and the other elevates it and says, yes, this is exactly how we can proclaim the gospel to a lost world fifth, that baptism dissolves the differences between circumcision and baptism. That means that they see circumcision and baptism essentially as the same thing. And I don't know if you've read any of Paul's letters, but he's really ticked off when people do that. He writes about the Judaizers and Galatians. You've abandoned the gospel and trusted in another gospel that you have to be marked off by a specific act. In Acts chapter 15, as they brought the testimony of the Gentiles to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience, those Judaizers came and said, well, they're not living in obedience to the law. They haven't been circumcised. They're not clean. And Peter, John, and James respond by saying, no, they're made clean by their faith. So we won't make them fulfill this obligation Because they've been made alive by God's work of the Holy Spirit in faith. And so to say that circumcision and baptism are the same thing, that's just not biblically consistent. It goes against all of what we see from the New Testament writers. That's not to say that circumcision is an unimportant aspect of Christian life. That's something we have to be biblically informed about. But we have to see that the sign of God's people is no longer circumcision. It's a heart that's regenerated by faith. And we see that sign through the sign of baptism. And the last objection, paedo-baptism makes God's new covenant promises less than a promise. If we live in light of the old covenant promise that we'll be his people by obedience of a law that we cannot fulfill, then Jesus' obedience to fulfill the law on our behalf now becomes just something that, that doesn't really matter much. But if we say what Jesus has done changes everything, we have to see that he's brought a new covenant and a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh that comes by faith. Sola fide, friends. By faith alone. We're made righteous in Christ. And so Pato Baptists do bring some critiques. And they bring some good critiques, I have to say. There are some passages in Scripture where it's easy to get kind of trumped on on differences and so one of their first objections is well what about the household baptisms of the book of of acts don't they show that god is working in families and that's true so if you look throughout the the book of acts you're going to see different household baptisms Uh, like cornelius in acts chapter 10 a gentile who has turned from the lord and is now running to him and peter's proclaiming the gospel to his entire household Hey, here's a really funny thing about that. Did you know that in Acts 10, it actually says that those who were baptized received Peter's message? So, context is king, friends. Uh, the the baptists are making an argument that, hey, they're baptizing their whole household. That has to include infants. No, the context actually tells us that those who received Peter's word were baptized. So, context is king. The second thing that they'll say is, well, Paul says that all children are to obey their parents and the Lord. That's Ephesians 6.1. And in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, he calls all children holy by their parents and their faith. Well, again, context is king. In Ephesians 6, Paul's actually addressing believers who are children to believing parents. He's not saying, hey, you unbelieving kids of believing parents are holy. He's saying you believing kids of believing parents are to honor them because you are changed by the gospel. And actually, in in 1 Corinthians 7.14, the context tells us that Paul is counteracting false belief of someone who becomes a Christian after marrying a non-Christian and pursuing separation. The passage actually has nothing to do with baptism. He calls the unbelieving spouse holy in the same way as kids, And so if you baptize an infant because their parent is holy, then therefore, according to that logic, we need to baptize unbelieving Christians because their spouse makes them holy. And I don't know about you, but I'd have a problem with that. We wouldn't baptize non-believing people, whether they're infants or adults. That would be anti-biblical. And then they say in Romans 4.11, Paul says that Abraham received the sign of righteousness by by circumcision. Well, Well, the response to that is no. Circumcision was a confirmation of what already existed in Abraham's heart, that he was righteous because of his faith and justification to God. Here's another thing. That justification, that work of his righteousness and his circumcision in Genesis, there's no mention of baptism. It has nothing to do with baptism has to do with his righteousness by faith before God. Another objection that they bring up is to reject paedal baptism is to essentially kick children out of the church. <laughs> and I have to say, God forms the church out of those who respond in faith. It really answer, it begs that question, well, how does God form the church? He, he forms the church of those who respond in faith. And so we would say, of course children should be a part of the life of the church. Of course they should be here. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Children should be involved in worship. They should hear us sing. As we sing the truths of what we believe, children are changed by that. As we proclaim the gospel through the teaching of the Bible, they can be influenced by that Bible teaching. As we gather together in fellowship, they can develop meaningful relationships that they see people of faith. Of course children should be a part of the church. We would never kick children out of the church. In fact, I love it when I hear children in church, especially when I'm preaching. I love to hear. Some people are like nervous that it bothers. No, there's nothing like hearing a child cry out. Whether it's in the service or in the message, there's nothing like that. It shows that God is a giver of life. And their last objection is that to reject paedo-baptism is to reject God's continuous plan of salvation. And so we'll agree God has a continuous plan of salvation. Jesus knew from the, before the foundations of the world that he was going to be God's plan A, to rescue God's people. God knew that he was going to work with Jesus. Ever from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the plan's the same to save the people of God. It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son by repentance and faith. That is God's plan of salvation. So we affirm that. But we also know that the law, what marked out God's people, was meant to be a precursor to point to what would come. The law had a purpose to fulfill. That purpose was to show us that we can't make it on our own, that we need God's saving act. And God's saving act comes through God's saving Son, our righteous king. And so we believe that there's a correct balance that needs to happen for Christians. We're not just saying, get rid of the old covenant, get rid of the Old Testament principles. We're saying, no, live based on biblical principles in light of what Jesus has done. This is not a denial of the Old Testament. It's an embrace of the Old Testament fulfilled in the Savior. At Church of Hope, we would say that baptism is required for church membership. And so why should baptism be required for church membership? It's because if membership is the house, right, if we live together as God's family, if we are existing around a table and with a group of people, we would say baptism is the door into that house. We know that you're a Christian based on your public confession through the act of baptism. So baptism is where... Where faith goes public. It's also a, an initiating oath sign of the new covenant. We show people again and again the new covenant has come through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. It's like the passport of the kingdom and the kingdom swearing in ceremony. We say, here's, here's the way we've been brought into the kingdom through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Our passport's stamped as we proclaim that through this act. And we're sworn into God's kingdom together. Baptism is a necessary criterion by which the church recognizes who is a Christian. We have a lot to say about knowing someone's a Christian based on their baptism. It's also an effective sign of church membership. We belong to the people of God, we belong to his kingdom, we belong to one another. And so there are some common objections that that exist, right? So here, have you ever heard this? Why do I need to make such a big public fuss about being a Christian? Isn't faith just something personal and private? Isn't it enough that I trust in Jesus? God knows my heart. That's a a common objection, right? And so what, what we've seen is that Jesus will have no private followers. When he calls people to follow him, he does so publicly, There are no secret disciples. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge by him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. And again, Jesus said in Luke 9, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and of the holy angel. Christians are those who confess Christ faith in christ and by definition confession is a public act speaking in someone's hearing if you're nervous about going public as a christian view baptism as an aid rather than an obstacle being baptized helps you do with your faith what you need to do with it share it openly a second objection. I've been a believer for decades now, and I wasn't baptized then, so why do I need to be baptized now after all this time? Since it's so long after my conversion, wouldn't it be meaningless? Well, it certainly would have been better for you to be baptized as soon as you came to faith in Christ. But when it comes to obeying Christ's commandments, late is better than never. And that, and the time has passed does, just because time has passed doesn't make the commandment any less binding. Sure, getting baptized now will mean admitting that you were wrong not to get baptized for all those years. But that's simply what it means to follow Jesus, to recognize that we're wrong and that in Him we can be made right. Jesus said, I have come, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Repentance is a thing of the Christian walk. Uh, another objection I don't know where to get baptized. Well, that's a problem, and here's some advice. Find a gospel-preaching church. Find a church that preaches the gospel and teaches the Bible. Find a church where people are serious about following Jesus and helping others follow him. Introduce yourself to those church's leaders. Let them know that you're a believer in Jesus and that you want to get baptized. And commit to joining that church, serving in the church, and letting the church that you know that you want to help them to grow more like Christ. Find a good gospel-preaching church that teaches the Bible. And the last objection, I was already baptized as an infant. Isn't baptism a one-time gig? Steve will tell you no. He's a great example. James will tell you no. Baptism is a one-time gig. Yes, we would affirm that you should probably just be baptized once. Once you've been baptized, you don't really need to be baptized again, and you shouldn't. But should infants be baptized? That's the question. Should infants be baptized? Is infant baptism really baptism? And I think the Bible would say no. And so we should be baptized by faith in Christ in obedience to Him. And so here at Hebrew Church of Hope, we are Baptist in a sense because we believe in believers' baptism. That baptism is an act of the church where we affirm someone's faith and an act of the individual where they confess their faith in Christ. And so we practice that because Jesus has commanded us to do so in love for him, in obedience to him, and as a portrait of the gospel to a lost world. So baptism, yes, is actually significant doctrine. And there might be some division. And it might be more of a secondary thing. But still, it's an important thing in the life of the church. And God's word tells us that we're to be baptized as believers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. Would you help us as we look to your word and as we now chew on what we've heard this morning? God, to follow you in faith. God, would you help us to respond to the gospel in light of what you have said? God, I pray that... You would just continue to work in us. And if anybody's here that hasn't been baptized yet, but that God that they would come, and they would come to me or one of the elders and just say, "I want to show the world that I trust in Jesus. I want to be made new. I want them to show my uh, my faith in the gospel." Lord, thank you for that amazing work. Thank you for that symbol. Thank you that recently we've been able to celebrate that. Uh, it feels like a lot. And we pray for more people to turn to the gospel and respond to its good news in repentance and faith. We pray for more celebrations as the church to celebrate that you have called us to live as holy people marked out by the gospel. So help us to be salt and light. In Jesus' name.